You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is Bruce Rydell. Uh, Bruce is a 30-year veteran of the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, and he's been an advisor to four presidents. Most recently, uh, President Obama asked him to chair an interagency task force reviewing the policy towards Afghanistan and Pakistan. He has served as a special assistant to other presidents on the National Security Council, on the National Intelligence Council. Currently, he's a senior fellow at the Saban Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institute. Bruce, welcome. Thank you. Thanks to be nice to be here. Okay, we're delighted to have you, Bruce. I think it's difficult not to be uh, not to be caught up in the day's news and headlines. Uh, the subject that you were advising the president on was Afghanistan and Pakistan. Certainly, both are in, are in the eye of the storm. And let me just ask you your comments first. Um, I think there's a real concern. Could Pakistan come apart? Could the Taliban actually come to par? I'm asking you several questions. And if so, what would be the, the, the fate of the nuclear weapons that exist in that country? I think that may be the most critical question facing American foreign policy at this time. Uh, Pakistan is the most dangerous country in the world today. Nowhere else in the world do you have the unique combination of terrorism, nuclear proliferation, nuclear arsenal, uh, military dictatorship, the future of democracy in the Islamic world, they all come together in an extraordinarily combustible way in Pakistan. Today, Pakistan faces a growing jihadist extremist menace. It is a real possibility that that jihadist force will take over Pakistan. It's not imminent. It's not inevitable. It's probably not the most likely outcome in Pakistan, but it has become a real possibility. A jihadist state in Pakistan would be the greatest security challenge to America and the West since the end of the Cold War. 
you would have the second largest Muslim country in the world, a hotbed, a breeding house of terrorism for groups like Al-Qaeda, Lashkar-e-Taiba, the group that attacked Mumbai last year, the Afghan Taliban, and a host of others, with the fastest growing nuclear arsenal in the world today. It's an explosive combination which should focus the minds of Americans as they think about foreign policy issues today. I can say to you that it certainly focused the minds of President Obama and his senior advisors as they have been trying to think about what to do about the future of Afghanistan and Pakistan. There's no simple answers here. We need a Pakistan policy that tries to strengthen the democratically elected civilian government. It's a weak government. It's plagued with corruption. Uh, its popularity has declined significantly already. But the alternative, a jihadist state in Pakistan, ought to sober our minds about working with what we've got today and to try to make this work. It's, it's an area, of course, uh, which has witnessed the so-called game of nations, that is, where Russia and other nations, the British and so forth, have, have marched in and, and left in defeat, uh, particularly in dealing with the, uh, the northwest frontier, the border area between Afghanistan and Pakistan, where uh, I think we believe al-Qaeda is presently uh, centered. Um, is that the case? There's no question. Um, that al-Qaeda has built a sanctuary, a safe haven uh, in Pakistan. That safe haven is getting bigger, both in terms of physical space that it can operate within and in terms of political room for maneuver within the Pakistani state. Uh, Pakistan today has numerous extremist groups. They're not a monolith. They don't have a single leader. They don't have a single agenda. But they operate as a syndicate in which various terrorists can move from one area to another with relative impunity. And al-Qaeda is thriving in that area. Today, uh, President Obama is arriving in Saudi Arabia. Al-Qaeda issued two tapes on the eve of his arrival, one from Obama, uh, from um, Osama's deputy, Ayman Zawahiri, and one from Osama bin Laden. The one from Osama bin Laden predictably denounced President Obama, but he spent most of his time talking about the situation in Pakistan because Pakistan has now become the epicenter, the focus of al-Qaeda's efforts. To put it simply, they smell blood in the water and they think they have an opportunity here to take over a functioning state. And as I said, if they were to succeed in doing it, it's not inevitable, it's not imminent, but it's a real possibility. We would be confronted with a nightmare in the 21st century that we need to find ways to avoid having to deal with. You know, I think one of the things that's very murky and a puzzle to people who try and understand the situation is, what is the relationship between al-Qaeda and the Taliban? It is, it's a complicated question. It's complicated uh, because the Taliban itself is now a multi-pronged organization. There's the old Afghan Taliban, the Taliban that hosted al-Qaeda before September 11th and that's led by Mullah Omar. 
that Afghan Taliban has revived and is now the spearhead of the insurgency against American and NATO forces in Afghanistan. The connections between al-Qaeda and the old Afghan Taliban are as deep as ever. They remain partners in an alliance against the United States in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. There's a new Pakistan Taliban, a kind of uh, mirror imitation, which is fragmented into different organizations. It's not a monolith either. This new Pakistan Taliban is focused on trying to overthrow the Pakistani state. It too has very close relations and increasingly close relations with al-Qaeda. Just this year, three factions of the Pakistan Taliban united together and in the public document in which they did so, they proclaimed their allegiance to Osama bin Laden's global Islamic Jihad. So what you have here is a complex syndicate of different extremist groups. Each has its own agenda, each has its own leaders. Some are powerful, some are weak. But they're increasingly coalescing together around the notion of trying to overthrow the Pakistani state. The, um, as, I, as I said earlier, so many countries, nations have been drawn into that area and left uh, with their heads bowed, so to speak. And it, it raises the question, is this an area, the so-called PAC, what was AFPAC is now the PAC-AF area, is this truly an area where we, we have any chance of engaging in what used to be called nation building? I mean, we are listening to uh, General Petraeus and his advisors, and it's not just about body count, it's about somehow providing the security for the people, and yet the, the leverage there is so, so slim dealing with such a weak central government in Pakistan and in, in, in uh, Afghanistan. Well, let, let me deal with each in turn. Um, Pakistan uh, is a country with a modern infrastructure by the standards of the region it lives in. Uh, it's a country with an upper middle class, uh, with an educated upper middle class. Uh, it has a, a history of political parties. Um, it also has an unfortunate history of military coups. Uh, Pakistan has been trying for 60 years to see if it can't produce something that is like a functioning democracy. Today, Pakistan is making its fourth attempt at doing that. It is doing it after a really remarkable revolution in the streets in the last two years by the lawyers' movement of the country, uh, by people who basically were saying, we want accountability the rule of law in our country. We should support that. Uh, this is what uh, America is all about. Uh, are they guaranteed to succeed? Obviously not. They've failed three times before. But we ought to try to make that happen and make that work. Afghanistan is a country much more backward. Uh, before the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in the late 1970s, Afghanistan was the second poorest country in the world. Thirty years of war, outside intervention, civil war, have only made it poor. 
trying to put Afghanistan back together is a gigantic job. We ought to be realistic about what we can accomplish. But on the other hand, when you're starting at the second from the bottom, you got a lot of room to grow uh, with modest steps. The Afghan people, and I've spent a lot of time talking to a lot of Afghans, do not want to go back to living in the kind of hell that the Taliban created in the 1990s. There are a lot of Afghans who want our support. Their complaint is that over the last seven years we talked a good talk, but there was no cattle there. We didn't provide the resources to make it happen. I think the policy that President Obama has endorsed and which General Petraeus and Ambassador Holbrook are trying to implement provides the resources to make the changes we need to have. And I think that there are a significant number of Afghans who will rally to the cause when they come to believe we're serious about it. This is not the time to get soft on our commitment in Afghanistan. Twice in recent history, we have walked away from Afghanistan. Once after the war against the Soviets in the 1980s, and secondly, after we liberated Kabul in 2001. Both times, the results were very unpleasant. We should learn from that history. We have a commitment to Afghanistan with a modest expense of resources. I think we can make a significant difference. In many ways, Pakistan's the harder problem. It's a bigger country. It's a more complex country. Uh, and what we're trying to do in Pakistan is change the strategic direction of a country. In Afghanistan, we have partners in the Afghan government that want to work with us. And what they're looking for is a seriousness of commitment. And I think that's what we need to do. You know, for, for folks here following the news and trying to understand it, there's a real wild card, and that's the Inter Services uh, Intelligence Agency, Pakistan's Intelligence Agency. Uh, it's a phenomenon we're not used to in this country because it seems to be almost a, it's, it's a key player in the, in the political arena in Pakistan, and uh, one that we worked with closely in helping the Mujahideen to drive the Soviets out of uh, Afghanistan and uh, after the uh, invasion in 79. But now we hear that, the, that there are people in the ISI, for example, who perhaps were linked to the, the attack in Mumbai in India uh, that have uh, ties with the Taliban, perhaps with al-Qaeda. And that's so foreign to us, so strange to us to hear of this very independent element, even independent of the military. I mean, they talk, we talk about political leadership, the military, and ISI. How powerful is it as, as, a, as a single institution? Uh, the ISI is a state within a state, or to be more exact, it's a state within the army. Uh, the ISI is uh, a creature of the Pakistani army, uh, and at the end of the day, it takes its general strategic direction from the Pakistani army. 80% of the officers in the ISI are serving army officers. But it does play an extraordinarily complex game, which you're absolutely right. It's very hard for American, and I would say most Western minds, uh, to comprehend. 
how you can have uh, both a patron-client relationship with one group of terrorists while you're fighting viciously against other groups of terrorists. Um, that's the uh, complexity of the Pakistan problem in a nutshell. Uh, Pakistan today is both a patron of terror, groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba that attacked Mumbai, to a certain extent the Afghan Taliban, and a victim of terror, its own Pakistani Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Our goal, in simple terms, is to get Pakistan to cease being a patron and simply be a victim until such time as it destroys the syndicate of terrorist groups that operate there. Pakistanis don't see it that way yet, at least those in the ISI and the army. They still see some of these groups as useful assets in the great game that you were talking about, and particularly in the great game against India. Lashkar-e-Taiba is a useful weapon to use against India, Pakistan's historic enemy. The Afghan Taliban are an asset for the day when America and NATO leaves Afghanistan, which most Pakistanis believe is not far away, and you're going to want to have an asset to control Afghanistan and particularly to prevent India from gaining control in Afghanistan. This complex calculation about using some groups, fighting some groups, having neutral attitude towards others is extraordinarily difficult for outsiders to understand and I have to say it must be complex even to the people inside ISI trying to manage it. But that's the reality of what we're dealing with here. The, uh, we hear over and over again, of course, about Kashmir. But one of the interesting things that came out of Mumbai was, uh, according to the media, that the, the, the CIA uh, was instrumental in helping to arrange intelligence cooperation between the Pakistanis and India over the issue of the folks who carried out the Mumbai attack. And I would think there'd always be the hope in arranging that, that, that such a relationship could grow and perhaps help to ease relations between Pakistan and India. The CIA has a long and intimate relationship with the ISI that goes back much beyond the 1980s to the 1950s. Um, we have been partners with them literally since the birth of the Pakistani state. Today, the ISI is our most important partner in the war against al-Qaeda and our most difficult partner in the war against al-Qaeda. Using our liaison relationship skillfully and with great care can be terribly helpful here, but only if we do it with our eyes wide open, with no illusions about the nature of our partner. We have to be cold realists, not take things on their word, but on verification. The unfortunate reality about the uh, people who carried out the attack on Mumbai is that so far there's been no serious crackdown in Pakistan. Just this week, Pakistani court released the head of Lashkar-e-Taiba, the group that carried out the attack. He'd been under the facade of house arrest for the last six months. Now the facade is gone. Uh, the Indians are going to wonder 
what is Pakistan doing here? Is it back to the old days? Are we once, or should we anticipate another attack? The United States has a critical interest, an absolutely fundamental interest, in reducing tensions between India and Pakistan. We cannot succeed in our goals in Afghanistan and Pakistan without reducing tensions between India and Pakistan. The last thing we want to see in this world is a war between India and Pakistan that could go nuclear and be the first nuclear war since 1945. We have to use all the instruments at our disposal in creative, sophisticated, and subtle diplomacy. The CIA can be one of those most important instruments behind the scenes. You know, I'm, I'm sort of taking you into the, the diplomatic uh, area, but during the Cold War at one point there was the, the, the policy of MAD between the Soviets and America, that is mutually assured destruction. I mean, if you start the war, you're all going to pay a terrible price and be destroyed in the, in the process. Is that something that has any currency in, in, in between these two countries? It, it, it does indeed. I mean, if, if you look at it from the Indian perspective, they have been remarkably provoked over the last 10 years. In December 2001, the Indian parliament was attacked by a terrorist group based in Pakistan. In 2008, the city of Mumbai was attacked by a terrorist group that sailed from the port of Karachi. The attackers were controlled by a headquarters somewhere in Pakistan. We know that those 10 terrorists in Mumbai were calling back to Pakistan, asking the question, should I kill them? It was remarkable. Yet, in both these cases and a slew of other major terrorist events in India over the last decade, India has demonstrated remarkable restraint. Well, it's not because of the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. It's because there is no viable military option for India to deal with a state that's equipped with nuclear weapons. Yes, you could have a surgical commando strike or an airstrike or a blockade of Pakistan's major harbors. But what do you do if the other side ratches it up? What do you do when you start down the escalatory ladder between India and Pakistan. How do you ensure that you're not going to end up in nuclear Armageddon? And Indian leaders have looked at this problem, thought about it, been trying to figure out an answer, and the only answer they've come up with is they have to demonstrate restraint. And in that sense, it is mutually assured destruction, but from the Indian perspective, it's a mad world in which Pakistan provokes them and they can't really respond. It's very dangerous. At some point, India's patience and its political capacity to exercise restraint is going to break. That's why the United States has a fundamental interest in being in there in a subtle way, not with bells and whistles and shuttle trips and things like that, but behind the scenes trying to encourage a reduction in tensions. We've had some success in the past. President Clinton walked the two countries back from the brink of war in 1999 over Cargill. President Bush did the same thing after the attack on the Indian Parliament in 2001 and 2002. But it's better to be proactive than to wait for the moment of catastrophe and try to walk them back in that period. 
a proactive policy, subtle, sophisticated, largely below the surface, one in which intelligence can be a key partner, is what we need today. Well, Bruce, your comments are, are fascinating, enlightening, and scary. Um, but I'd like to, I'd like to finish uh, by asking uh, for a comment from you, because we've gotten a lot of feedback from our program, and we know a lot of young people are out there who are thinking about a career possibly in, in intelligence or somewhere in the, in the intelligence community. You've had an extraordinary career. Um, you have been a, at the most senior levels as an analyst in CIA. You have served on the National Security Council. You've been the National Intelligence Officer. Uh, and you've served uh, in, the, in the National Intelligence Council. And uh, you have been an advisor to now four presidents. And I've read a little of your background. You have participated in meetings with foreign leaders where only you and the present president were present. This is an extraordinary exposure. But I, I would love to hear your comments to someone who might be considering such a career and wondering about, you know, the state of the intelligence community or uh, would they really have a chance to make a contribution? The American intelligence community always seems to be in crisis, undergoing reorganization, and we're constantly told their morale is bad. Uh, I heard all that when I entered in 1977. The American intelligence community is stronger than all of that. Uh, the dedication of officers in the CIA and other parts of the community is not to be underestimated. The opportunity to serve your country here is remarkable. Uh, you can come in as a new analyst in the CIA and end up writing for the President of the United States within your first year of office. You can come in as a collections officer in the field and provide critical intelligence for your country on your first overseas tour of duty. There are very few places in the American government where you can start to make a difference, literally from the day you walk into the office. It's hard. It's demanding work. Uh, for those who serve in the clandestine service, and I had an opportunity on several occasions to work in the clandestine service, it's a difficult lifestyle, no question about it. Uh, it will put enormous stresses on your family and your family life. But if you want to make a difference, this is the uh, cutting edge of the United States. Bruce, it's been wonderful having you in today. And uh, so we certainly appreciate your insights into what is truly a story ripped from the headlines. This is the most critical issue facing the United States abroad. And so we've, we've really uh, greatly appreciated your taking time to be with us. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. Great to be here. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum dot org. Thank you. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network, 
and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.